This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self-Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I started Self-Work almost four years ago now in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in psychological or emotional issues, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with something and you're really looking for answers, or maybe you've run up against a relationship problem that you just can't seem to work through, but also to that third group who has either let stigma about mental health or mental illness get to them and would never darken the door of a therapist or some that simply don't have enough information about it and are a little distrustful of the whole process. So I'll give you a taste of what it would be like to hang out with a psychologist or any other mental health professional and collaborate on what's going on in your life and in your struggles. Today, we're going to be talking about some basic tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, of course, a very well-researched therapy. The CBT folks say you have stinking thinking when you are making some mental mistakes. The same is true for its close cousin, DBT, or dialectical behavior therapy. And both CBT and DBT are highly recommended as a therapeutic method to fend off depression and actually also anxiety. I regularly have people contact me and ask, do I do CBT? As a therapist, I don't necessarily focus only on distorted beliefs and thoughts or mental mistakes. But yes, it's definitely one of the techniques I use. It just makes sense. And it's fairly easy to understand. What's not so easy is to recognize these mental mistakes in yourself. Just like most things, when you hear them from someone else, it's much easier to see. So today, in this episode, once again sponsored by BetterHelp, we'll talk about the 12 most common mental mistakes that you can make, or as the CBT people call them, cognitive distortions, and, as is a feature of almost every self-work, what to do about them. The listener email for today is from a man whose addictions have created pain and severe illness. He takes responsibility, but also states that his wife is stuck in believing that he's feeling sorry for himself. He says he's very depressed. This is a very difficult situation where actually both sound angry and certainly not allied. And we hear it from his own voice because he used the speak pipe feature that's on my website and also in your show notes to leave me a message. So we're going to talk about CBT today and mental mistakes. I heard the phrase stinking thinking in graduate school and had to laugh that whoever made it up had to be a Southerner. But its humor shouldn't hide that these kinds of mental errors or mistakes can lead to a tremendous amount of chaos, paralysis, depression, anxiety, you name it. First, simply put, CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, has been around for quite a few years, but hasn't lost its reputation as being highly effective in the treatment, especially for depression and anxiety. In fact, one of the first books on it that David Burns wrote called The Feeling Good Handbook is still in the top 10 books bought for depression. CBT folks believe that if you change your thinking, then the emotions or actions tied to those beliefs or mistaken beliefs will also change. And voila, your depression will lift. 
I've always thought it was interesting that depression in and of itself can make your thinking very foggy and unclear. So this technique is not as easy as you might think. There are other strategies that are very different from CBT, for example, EFT or emotionally focused therapy, where the focus is on attachment issues and what is making someone feel safe and secure. Or there's something very different called family systems therapy, where you work with your therapist on family dynamics and your family of origin, and that takes center stage in treatment. But CBT is one of the many ways of thinking about clients that a therapist can have at his or her fingertips. In fact, CBT is very well researched. It's pretty straightforward. And when it first arrived on the scene, its focus was far different than the more traditional at that time psychoanalytic therapy, which was all about internal struggles between parts of the self. And that therapy was based on very early developmental issues. It was also, however, seen as expensive with very long treatment protocols. There also existed behavioral therapy, That came along after psychoanalytic therapy, almost as a response to it, or reaction to it. It was derived from a system of reward and punishment, and how that motivates our behavior. It was much more problem-oriented and present-focused. You can probably hear the differences. But after that, along comes CBT, and it was new and different. And it talked about how to fix it, by replacing those thoughts with healthier, clearer, more objective, more rational thinking. For example, if you've ever told yourself that because you stubbed your toe getting out of bed that your whole day was going to be awful, then you've made a mental mistake or experienced a cognitive distortion. Obviously, stubbing your toe at 6.30 a.m. has nothing to do with whether or not your day will go swimmingly or not. CBT is all about being rational, not emotional. And when it came to the forefront of therapeutic research, rationality was a favorite go-to topic. That was in the 1950s and 60s when it was developed, and it became a very popular treatment technique. It's very homework-based and asks the client to do a lot of journaling about their thinking and how it colors their view of themselves and the world. So, there's going to be a lot of information in this one, so hang on, and let's talk about these mental mistakes. And these first ones come from Burns Feeling Good Handbook. The first one is called all-or-nothing thinking or polarized thinking. It's also known as black and white thinking. And basically, the mistake is that you don't see the gray in anything. In other words, you see things in terms of extremes, right, wrong, bad, good. But this is a little less simple than it may sound and can certainly cause a lot of discussion because there's a right and wrong, right? But what's that moral question about, I think it's an exercise people can take about whether stealing is wrong. But what about stealing the meds because your child is very ill? Then is it as wrong? And so you can see where there's a little bit of gray that they want you to think about. Another example is, do you judge someone for driving too fast, but then realize their daughter's having a baby in the back seat or driving too slowly, and then you realize it's a funeral procession? Sometimes we jump to the black and white side of things and then hang on to it like there's just one truth. That perspective has nothing to do with anything. And so CBT people feel like that is a mistake. I would agree. The second one is overgeneralization. This is a very sneaky distortion that takes one instance or example of something and generalize it to an overall pattern. Let's say someone doesn't text you back for several hours. So you decide that they're never going to respect you when you break up with them. You can hear the mistake What you've done is you've taken one thing and exaggerated what it means. 
another example is another one is if you don't do well on a test in math, that you should drop the course because I obviously can't do math. So you're taking one instance of something and generalizing it, overgeneralizing it to the whole topic. The third mistake is what they call a mental filter. Similar to overgeneralization, the mental filter distortion, and that's hard to say, (laughs) focuses on a single negative piece of information and excludes everything positive. You've heard this from someone whose friend says something snarky one day, and that's all they can think about, rather than remembering what a good friend they've been through the years. They're allowing one new piece of info to destroy the rest of the picture. The mental filter can foster a decidedly pessimistic view of everything around you by focusing only on the negative. But I'd add that the filter can also be a rigidly positive one, as in perfectly hidden depression. Someone can refuse to connect with something sad or painful, excluding all of that, and only focusing on what has happened that's good. That can be very hurtful to a child, for example, who's looking for affirmation of hurt. Again, this is a lot of information, but we're going to get to the what you can do about it, okay? Number four is disqualifying the positive. This is when someone who receives positive feedback and affirmation outright rejects it. The only reason I got the job was that I was in the right place at the right time. This is the opposite of a mental filter where you can only hear the negative. You convince yourself there could be no positive reason that this is happening. For example, a person who receives a positive review at work might reject the idea that they're a competent employee and attribute the positive review to political correctness or to their boss simply not wanting to talk about their real performance. This can be particularly harmful since there may be strong evidence that things are positive, but only the negative is allowed in. This is very similar when it's at work to imposter syndrome. But there are other instances where it could be true Perhaps someone still believes that cancer is going to kill them, although the tests say they are in remission. So you cannot pay attention to the positive. Number five, jumping to conclusions or mind reading. You make gross assumptions about others and interpret things the way they make sense to you. For example, let's say your partner is kind of scowling as they brush their teeth in the morning and you pop off with, are you mad at me? I know you're mad. It's, it's ludicrous. You are jumping to conclusions. We may have an idea of what someone is thinking if we know them well, but to assume it's something negative about you doesn't make sense. I call this in my practice over-personalizing, making what isn't about you about you. Very similar to jumping to conclusions, I guess, but I like to think of it as over-personalizing. It's an easy way to think of it. Number six, jumping to conclusions or fortune-telling. This is when you tell yourself something is a fact, when you're assuming you know what others think or believe, but you don't. But you believe and act on those beliefs. For example, I could have told myself, there's no reason for me to start a podcast. No one will want to listen to someone like me. I'd be predicting something terrible happening and that I can have no agency. I can have no impact because I'm assuming that I'm unacceptable. I guess you could have the opposite one, couldn't you? There's a great reason for me to start a podcast because everyone will want to listen to it. I guess that's called narcissism. Number seven, magnification or catastrophizing or minimization. This one's pretty well known. 
This is when you magnify a mistake as making you or others not valuable or skilled or kind or whatever, and you minimize the meaning of an achievement or something positive. How many times have you heard someone you care about or perhaps yourself say, oh, they'll never come back to eat here or have dinner with us because I wasn't a very good conversationalist or we didn't make good conversation. And so you magnified, maybe it was a little awkward, but you're saying, oh, they'll never come back because of that. Or you might say, they said they love dinner, but they're probably people who say that all the time. So either you magnify it or you minimize it, but you're still catastrophizing. You're taking something that might not have been very pleasant, and you're making it into something that's really horrible. I had a patient do this a couple of weeks ago when she told me she felt like she'd been rude at a party. Now, these were her friends. And I kind of said, okay, so you had a bad night. And she was saying, oh, but... I'm going to lose all those friends, and I was, she called herself a bad name, and I said, just say you're sorry and go on. That's catastrophizing. Number eight, emotional reasoning. This is very potent in mental illness. If I feel it, it must be true. Now, sometimes your feelings or your gut is correct, but sometimes, even often, it's not. I have an instance of this with my brother, my middle brother. I was rude to him at dinner years and years and years ago. I'd called him a name. I guess this is sort of the <laughs> the episode where we're talking about name calling. And I just knew he'd hung on to that and resented it. And years later, I got up the gumption to apologize to him, and he didn't even remember. Okay, So, I mean, I felt bad about it, and so I was projecting that onto him and thinking that obviously is his reality as well. Number nine are should statements. I have a whole chapter on this in the book. This is about the rules of your life, what you should do, have to do, must do. And we often can't live up to them. And that must mean we are bad people. That's shame. Or we believe that others should or must or ought to treat us a certain way and we get mad or hurt, which is also not very helpful. When especially we may not have even talked to them about what we were hoping for. Here's number 10, labeling and mislabeling. Mislabeling refers to the application of highly emotional, loaded, and even inaccurate or unreasonable language when you label something. There's so much of this going on these days, but of course, I'm not going to venture into politics. But let's go over some of these distortions and how they lead to prejudice of all kinds, and thus people living in tiny boxes they believe are real. CBT calls these fallacies, and some of them are, I have no control over my life, Or, I'm in complete control and responsible for the feelings of those around me. You're labeling yourself as responsible, or you're labeling yourself as having absolutely no control. Here's another fallacy or mistake. The world should always be fair, and the opposite of that is, the world is completely unfair. And as we know, objectively, the world is sometimes fair and sometimes it's not, but you can label it incorrectly. Here's another one. If I work hard enough, I can make someone else change, and then I can be happy. Uh, no. That's a mistake and a mislabel. Here's another one. I must always be right. And here's the last one. If I struggle, I'll be rewarded. You can hear the black and white nature of all these errors, but it's much harder to capture them while they're going on. So what can you do? Before I answer that question, here's a special message for you from BetterHelp. I was delighted when BetterHelp reached out to me as a potential sponsor. What exactly is BetterHelp? 
BetterHelp is an online therapy service that will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not really self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. I also tried this out, of course, for my self-work listeners, and I was very impressed with the two counselors I tried. There's a broad range of expertise, and you're actually matched to the therapist that they believe will work best for you. You can have video sessions, phone sessions, you can text, and actually it's much less expensive than quote-unquote normal therapy. And BetterHelp is rated number one by so many platforms that specialize in trying to help you find the best therapy online for you. There's a special offer for self-work listeners where you get 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com slash self-work. That's trybetterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash self-work. You can begin getting help today, and I highly recommend it. So give it a try. John Grohall, who's the chief editor of the wonderful resource Psych Central, put together this list of to-dos or steps to confront your mental mistakes. What you'll notice, I'm sure, is that people at CBT are very analytical, and these techniques sound very businesslike. But let's try them on for size. We'll go again fairly rapidly through this material, but the link is in your show notes as well as the fact that he offers lots of handouts, free handouts that you can download if you'd like. Okay, so the first thing you do is obviously you have to identify your mistake. He suggests doing a daily log and noting what things you get upset about or cause you worry. Then look over the 10 distortions that we just talked about and begin to see if you're perhaps using one of those. Obviously, some objective feedback from a therapist or a friend here can be very helpful. The second thing he says is to examine the evidence. Look to see if it's opinion, your opinion, or is it actually true? For example, statements such as, oh, I'm selfish and there's something wrong with me are opinions. A statement is my coworker spoke in an angry voice toward me, or I forgot to take out the trash. Making opinions distinct from facts can help you determine what you're likely to be a mental mistake rather than an actual fact. So just like a judge overseeing a trial, you're going to seek out the facts and take out the emotionality of irrational thinking. Number three is a double standard method, and this very basically honed down is to use compassion with yourself. Don't judge yourself by a standard you wouldn't judge someone else. I'm sure most of you who, if you think about a friend studying for an exam, you're not going to say to them, you know, you're going to screw this up. But those might be things that run through your own mind. So you've got to learn how to answer those automatic negative thoughts. You know, like you're going to do well. You're studying hard and that's all you have control over. So use the same standard for yourself as you do for others. His fourth what to do about it, as I would say, is to try to think in shades of gray. Now, undoing black and white thinking can be very challenging because actually it's simpler. It simplifies life to think about black or white, right or wrong, good or bad. And sometimes we have to make decisions very quickly and that helps you. But instead, think about a grayer way of looking at things. Number five is what he calls an experimental method. Can you test whether your irrational thoughts have any basis in fact? And he kind of breaks this down into two different techniques. Number six and number seven, basically. One is to do a survey, to actually ask other people 
whether or not what you believe is something that's fact. For example, I have a client with obsessive compulsive disorder and one of her compulsions is to brush her teeth all the time during the day. So she asked me one day, well, how often do you brush your teeth? And when I told her, she said she was just flabbergasted. She hadn't realized that other people don't do the same thing she does. The other is what's called the semantic method, again, a fancy term for really watching the way you build your reality with your words. That's what semantic is. Semantic is talking about vocabulary or word use. You know, if you say to yourself, I should have known better, instead you could say, I want to learn from this. You can hear how how you say it makes a difference in what you feel. The eighth technique he uses is called definitions, to actually look up the definition of the label you're attaching to yourself and say, wait a minute, I'm calling myself a loser. Am I actually a loser? Number nine is called reattribution. This is very helpful, for example, with people who blame themselves for everything. If you look at something logically, are you truly to blame? Probably not. There are other reasons that things happen other than you. You're attributing things or the outcome to yourself that there are multiple reasons for. The last one is called a cost-benefit analysis. And I thought his actual explanation of this was kind of difficult to understand. Basically, I think this is figuring out the function of what you're telling yourself. Let's say I believe that older women, such as myself, should never wear short sleeves. I'd figure out what function that was serving for me when I tell myself that. If I don't like my arms, it would serve the function of me not looking at them. If my mother taught me that particular thing, it's serving the function of me following what she said and staying loyal. But then you look at it and say, but is this belief still costing me? And it certainly might as it gets hotter in the summer in Arkansas. So these are all very analytical, logical, rational ways of looking at your thoughts and beginning to question them. You may need to go through this episode more than once to try to understand all of this because it's a lot of information and I know that. Or you can actually look at the article yourself and go over it there. So here's today's listener email. So I'm dealing with a lot of different health issues, liver cancer, COPD, congestive heart failure, cirrhosis, nerve pain beyond belief. My wife seems to determine that I'm uh, having a pity party when I'm depressed. When the doctors that I've seen just can't seem to find the answers to help me with the pain. And uh, I considered myself fairly godly. I was reading scripture every day, but my wife just keeps throwing this stuff in my face that it's just in a pity party, and that's how I'm dealing with it. It's far from the truth. Extremely depressed. I know that I'm the one that caused the liver cancer, and the smoking was the COPD, and probably congestive heart failure. I have no one to blame except my own self. But my wife doesn't understand that I've accepted the fact that That's my fault, not anyone else's. It sounds as if this listener understands that he did things, one would assume smoking and drinking, that's caused him to be in terrible medical shape, and he's very depressed about it. His wife is also grieving, but from his perspective, blames him as well, and thinks his depression, which may look like isolativeness or irritability, doesn't really say, is him feeling sorry for himself. 
I will say that by its very nature, depression can often look like what I call an implosion of the self. Literally, your energy is sucked back inward, and you feel as if you have little to give or offer others. You add self-blame or shame or anger or grief onto that, and it may very well look like self-pity. Of course, he doesn't go into the why of his addictions, and those could be many. But when I heard this dynamic from him, I thought of an experience I had in graduate school where they made us go to an AA session with an alcoholic and his family. We were allowed to watch as his family confronted him about the impact of his addictions, and his task was to listen and then later to make amends, as AA calls it. Making amends recognizes that you can't take back the choices you made. You can't take back that you're addicted or you have been addicted. What you can do is realize the impact that those choices had on people who care about you and then take responsibility for that. That session was a very powerful thing to watch. There were tears and the beginnings of forgiveness, but there was still a very long road. A lot of addicts don't do this. They remain, even if sober, angry, and blaming, hence the term dry drunk. I'm not sure anything like that is happening here. It certainly sounds like both people are angry, both people are grieving, but their communication is stuck with him saying he knows he's to blame and maybe resenting her saying something about that. While she may be trying to talk about her own grief, but instead of talking about her, she's focusing on him. Neither would seem are open to a different kind of talking. This may not be the situation, but in the minute and a half he talked, he sounded as if he was angry, and he certainly portrayed her as angry. And what I know about grief is that anger is only one part of it. So I would hope that they could have a different kind of conversation with one another about all of their grief. And what he can do is listen, be able to hear her anger, He may be so angry with himself or feels if it's not fair that he got sick, that he's not understanding her own fear. They've got a long medical battle in front of them. So I hope they can get out of the cycle of blame and anger and do some work together. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Self-Work. CBT is a very interesting kind of therapy and, again, has been very well researched as a wonderful avenue to follow in the treatment of trying to get your thoughts on a better track. There are many ways of getting in touch with me. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and you can subscribe there. That's a very easy way to keep up with the podcast as well as my weekly blog post, and you'll only get a weekly newsletter. Thank you to those who've left me reviews on Apple Podcasts, or I got seven or eight reviews on Amazon for my new book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. My heart sang when I saw those because they make a huge difference. Just a rating or certainly a written review. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. You can check me out on Instagram and again, Rutherford. And I'm inviting you to join my Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Again, thank you for being here. Take very good care. Stay safe and sane. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.